EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. EPC Power is headquartered in San Diego County, California, and recently opened an engineering and sales location in Helsinki, Finland, to support the growing global demand. Visit epcpower.com energygang to learn more about the utility scale and CLI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Welcome to the show. In this episode, with air travel bouncing back despite the spread of the Omicron variant, what are the best prospects for taking the emissions out of aviation? Capital inflows into climate tech have been booming, but is the money really going to the right places to tackle the climate crisis? And the EU's green taxonomy is creating a lot more excitement than you might expect for something called a taxonomy. We'll be talking about what it is and why it matters. And finally, there's a new film out that's sort of about climate change. It's been a massive hit on Netflix. Does it really say anything interesting about how the world is facing up to the threat of global warming? To discuss those topics, we have Emily Chasen returning this week. She's at Generate Capital, the green infrastructure investment firm. Emily, hi. Great to see you again. You too, Ed. And also, for the first time in the Energy Gang, I'm delighted to welcome Amy Harder, formerly of the Wall Street Journal and of Axios, now at Breakthrough Energy, which is the net zero initiative founded by Bill Gates. Amy, it's great to see you. Thanks very much for joining us. Hello, it's great to be here. I was trying to remember when we first met, I think maybe when we were competitors, when you were at the Wall Street Journal and I was at the Financial Times, is that right? And we've kind of seen each other a number of times at various energy journalism things down the years. I think that's right. Yeah, I definitely think as, as most journalists, Emily as well, we've crossed paths over the years. But Ed, I think one memory that's particularly acute for me, and perhaps the last time we spoke was uh, when I think I was at Axios and I had interviewed Robert Murray, who has since uh, passed away a few years ago, former CEO of Murray Energy, a coal company. I had written something that had upset him and he was threatening to sue me. And it was based upon something you had written. So I felt compelled <laughs> to call you and give you a heads up that we might have a problem on our hands. Of course, the, the, the late Bob Murray was a very litigious guy who, who did not uh, like the media. Needless to say, he did not end up suing us. And I don't think I ever even circled back to let you know that the problem was resolved. But needless to say, it was. No, but I, I am very sorry about that. I must apologize now for getting him into trouble. And it's very, very uh, forgiving of you to still come on the Energy Gang all the same. <laughs> Apology accepted. Thanks a lot for that. Now, tell us a little bit about Breakthrough Energy then. As I say, founded by Bill Gates, it does a number of different things, including investment and advocacy. Can you talk about what its mission is? Yeah, certainly. So Breakthrough Energy has been around as a venture fund uh, since 2015. And that's how most people uh, know Breakthrough is the Breakthrough Energy Ventures, uh, where does we uh, BEV has invested in dozens of companies uh, uh, in the hard to abate sectors, everything from sustainable aviation fuel to direct air capture to long duration energy storage. But ever since uh, Bill's book came out last February, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, Breakthrough Energy as a broader organization has really grown rapidly. And so uh, there's several different programs that we've launched over the years. Uh, And if you imagine sort of a technological pipeline of how you go from soup to nuts of any certain technology, the Venture Fund is is in the middle. But before that, we have a program called Fellows, which is funding uh, researchers and inventors of new technologies uh, among academia and other sort of really basic research uh, organizations. And then on the other side of the Venture Fund, we have this big program called Catalyst, which is sort of a unique financing mechanism that tries to get uh, new projects sort of through the valley of death. So the first direct air capture project or the first green hydrogen plant. And so really what Breakthrough Energy is trying to do is support all sides of the, the technological pipeline to get the technologies where we need to get them in what is an incredibly fast pace. And that's really the difference. You know, a lot of these technologies would come to fruition, but not on the fast scale that we need to reach net zero by 2050. And you, as I was saying, you've got a background in journalism and you've kept your hand in the energy journalism game, right? You have this uh, newsletter called Cypher. What's that about? Yeah, so they brought me on last year to launch a new media company, essentially, uh, supported by Breakthrough. And we settled on the word cipher. Uh, So cipher means zero, as in zero greenhouse gas emissions, which is our goal. 
I'm calling Cypher mission-driven journalism. So we're very much still doing objective and critical journalism, but we're doing it with an eye of, we want to help accelerate the technological transformations that we need. And, you know, if, if you look at the journalism I'm doing now compared to what I was doing at Axios, it's not too different. Now, of course, you'll notice a much more focus on technological topics than perhaps I was doing before. And that really excites me because I think that is where a lot of the exciting developments are taking place. And so now we have a weekly newsletter. We do have plans to grow. So stay tuned uh, for more news on that development. And it just really excites me that there's this the appetite, number one, and the support to do uh, the type of journalism that that I think we'll need to have to reach net zero. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. So the first subject I want to talk about is aviation. We've just had the Christmas and New Year holidays, obviously, and a lot of people have been traveling despite the upsurge in COVID cases caused by the Omicron variant. Emily, did you fly anywhere over the holiday season? No, I tried to hide and stay put, but um, it's an interesting time for sure to think about, you know, all the choices we're making in aviation and how people are thinking more about flying than they've ever before. So there's probably a lot to build off in that space as you think about extending years of flying from COVID to climate. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I I flew myself, went back to see um, friends and family in England, which was a great thing to do. Hadn't been able to do that the previous Christmas, obviously. And Despite everything, despite all the difficulties, we tested many, many times while we were there and fortunately managed to stay COVID free, which was a great relief. But yeah, it was, you know, we really felt that we wanted to fly and and we thought it was, despite the risks, worth taking that risk. Amy, did you go anywhere? I did. Uh, My plans were somewhat derailed, however. So I live in Seattle, Washington, moved back to Seattle, I have to say now two years ago uh, in 2020, right before the pandemic or right as the pandemic was taking hold. And so I actually drove back to Spokane, Washington, just on the east side of the mountains here in Washington. I flew back, but my flight was canceled due to weather. Uh, The Seattle area really had a one-two punch of a lot of snow and bad weather right after Christmas. And then, of course, Omicron was raging. So I decided uh, not to go on the second half of my uh, holiday travel, which was to Sun Valley, Idaho, to see my partner's family and spend time with them. Uh, That was really too bad. But, you know, I just thought between the weather and Omicron, best to stay put. Uh, So I had a lot of time relaxing at home. Very wise, but it's clear that a lot of people are flying again. I was looking at the numbers. If you look in in mid-December in the US, there were 2 million people a day going through the TSA's checkpoints. That's still well below the pre-pandemic levels, but it's about double what we were seeing in the same period of 2020. And if you look, I was looking at um, jet fuel demand in the last month of the year, in December 2021, that was down only about 15% from pre-pandemic levels. Lesson I guess I take away from that is that demand for energy, demand for oil in particular, is highly resilient. Even with the pandemic still raging, people still want to fly as we hopefully get past COVID, whatever the um, route is to doing that. But certainly it does seem like despite setbacks like Omicron, we are making progress. People are going to want to continue to uh, fly more. That's going to increase demand for jet fuel. And that's going to be a phenomenon both in, in the US and around the world. And obviously that's a real problem for getting to net zero emissions. Aviation emissions are still pretty small, accounting for only about uh, 2% of total greenhouse gas emissions, but their share is rising. The airline industry has pledged to do something about that. In October, IATA, the International Air Transport Association, which represents the world's airlines, did set a goal of getting to net zero emissions by 2050, which means aligning the industry with the goals of the Paris Agreement. To do that, they're putting a lot of faith in what they call sustainable aviation fuels. That's the main technology which they say will help the aviation industry reduce emissions. About two-thirds of the emissions reductions that they say they're going to be able to make to get to net zero come from using sustainable aviation fuels instead of conventional jet. And that's really what I want to talk about today is this question of sustainable aviation fuel and what role can it play. Emily, maybe to start with you first on this, it always makes me laugh a bit, the name sustainable aviation fuel, it reminds me of, I can't believe it's not butter, in that it's one of these products that raises a lot of questions in its name. In other words, what is sustainable aviation fuel? Well, it's it's an aviation fuel that's sustainable. Yeah, but what actually is it? So can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, when people talk about sustainable aviation fuel, what do they mean? Yeah, well, it's funny, this weekend I was 
out like watching in the outdoors on like a completely blue sky day and you could just see the only clouds were ones created by airlines with the little stream running behind them and you're we're it's like is that heat no it's it's emissions right so um clearly aviation fuel is a source of emissions i think it's two percent that's actually a lot for just one industry so sustainable aviation fuels is kind of a great hope for where we could be taking air travel so sustainable aviation fuels are biofuel right it's constituted from maybe corn or corn husks or, you know, the kind of biofuel we put in our cars right now. And what's kind of really attractive about it is that you can use existing infrastructure from the airline industry because you can just change the source of fuel or you could, you know, load their planes with a slight amount of or mixture of sustainable aviation fuel rather than um, just complete fossil fuel. And there's possible for some of this to be renewable and produced sustainably. So Brazilian sugarcane is seen as a really great source of sustainable aviation fuel. Same with like corn husk material and stuff that you can, you know, not use necessarily, but or would otherwise be wasted and you could turn it into sustainable aviation fuel. But it's kind of a problematic issue because people aren't sure they want to, you know, grow crops separately for sustainable aviation fuel. Um, they don't want to take away that space that might otherwise be used by trees or by the food supply. So the question of whether it can be produced sustainably is sort of one thing that's slowed it down a little bit. There was just recently these Swiss researchers that said they can produce sustainable aviation fuel from sunlight and air. So if that's pretty optimistic, if they can do it, that just came out in November. There was an article in the journal Nature about it, and it's a direct capture kind of form. So I think there's a lot of room for creativity um, using food waste, using animal byproducts. There's a lot of companies trying to focus on this space because it's the easiest way to start to solve this problem in airlines. It would be a lot harder to put like hydrogen fuel cells on a plane or to put really heavy batteries on a plane. So that's something that people are really looking into. Right. And I guess it's quite interesting that a lot of sustainable aviation fuel that people are looking at is essentially a biofuel. Biofuels have got often a pretty bad image nowadays, as you say, because of land use issues, um, competition with food supply. Biofuels are one of the technologies for emissions reduction that are being challenged pretty widely. And certainly, I think, for road fuel, people think there probably isn't much more of a future for a greatly increased use of biofuels. Do you think that biofuels are going to be a viable solution if we use them for sustainable aviation fuel? Or are we going to have to talk about some of these non-biofuel solutions, like, as you say, the company um, uh, using direct air capture and carbon to make a fuel that way? Yeah, I think, well, we have to get to a point where we have many, many billions of gallons of sustainable aviation fuel available in the market. And this is sort of, of any technology, you find this issue where there isn't a lot of cost for the first type of pilots and stuff. There's not a lot of cost benefit to that. It's like very expensive to do the first kinds. And then over time, you sort of gain skill and learning that makes it cheaper. And there's more demand that makes it cheaper over time. So sustainable aviation fuel is like kind of expensive right now to start producing. And there's some CapEx involved in just putting those systems online to create the fuel and get it into airplanes. And obviously, the easier thing to do is just buy jet fuel A from, you know, the regular fossil fuel market. But like what we're saying is that we don't want to do that anymore. If the nearest alternative is fossil fuel, right, maybe this is not such a bad alternative and you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, I talked to Lauren Shum at the Department of Energy and she worked on this path. The Biden administration has a new challenge to advance the future of sustainable aviation fuels. And they're trying to run a challenge where they're saying, like, can you create the technology that's going to create billions of gallons of sustainable fuel by 2030? That's kind of interesting to say, like, we have to figure out how to scale it up. What do we need to do to scale it up? Can we inspire some competition like going to space? Um, This is that kind of moment for it. You mentioned the Biden administration's challenge um, on sustainable aviation fuel. How does that work? What kind of ideas are they looking for? So the Department of Energy is offering up to $3 billion in loan guarantees. There's millions of dollars available for projects, developing feedstock and algae technologies, and just trying different ways to make this technology work so that you can get to an economical, sustainable biofuel solution. You know, it's interesting because there's actually a lot of reasons to try and change it. You know, pollution, they talk about pollution around airports and, you know, living near an airport can be dangerous or like farmers are allowed to use different types of fuel that still has lead in it. So there's actually a source of air emissions that's you know environmental lead from traditional fuels that we're using. So if we can find biofuel options, that would help a lot in terms of just even air quality and health in those areas. Um, there's huge benefits in terms of reducing particulate matter, all of that stuff. And you know it's going to be interesting too whether 
electric planes or hydrogen can be used. Um, I'm sure people are looking at those, but you know, it's like it, hydrogen fuel cells might take a lot of space. I know Cape Air put it in order for some electric planes for short haul flights, and that might be a really great solution for short haul flights. Um, but the battery otherwise is pretty heavy and would weigh things down. That's a problem you run into trucking as well. So I think we're just going to see how we can make this low margin and economically successful. And that's sort of the challenge that we face in every area of sustainable development. Yeah, the the, the whole electric plane thing is absolutely world to me, as you say, given the weight of the batteries. It's pretty amazing. I went to see, do you remember there was a solar powered plane that flew around the world? Do you remember that? Which was an astonishing thing to see because it was absolutely enormous. It's huge, great long wingspan and the the, uh, solar panels on top of the wings. And it had batteries as well, so that it could continue to be powered at night. Although I think actually a lot of the time it just used to kind of fly up very high and then kind of glide gently downwards at night. And that carried one passenger. It went around the world, but it carried one passenger. And as you say, just the whole, you know, the power to weight uh, calculation with batteries really does make um, electric aviation a very tricky problem to solve. My understanding with electric aviation is that that could really be a great solution for shorter flights. And for, I think, up to 50% of the flights in the United States are, according to electric airplane advocates, within the range that could be serviced by electric battery-powered airplanes. Because, you know, you just go from, I flew from uh, Spokane to Seattle or, you know, Seattle to Chicago. And a lot of these flights are relatively short that longer term, as the technology develops, they could be serviced by batteries. But for the really emitting airplanes that are sending us, you know, to Africa, to Australia, uh, those uh, are likely not going to, for the reasons we've all listed here, and uh, are going to need the drop-in liquid fuels, which is why biofuels and sustainable aviation fuel is so important. And that's something, Amy, you've just been writing about in Cypher, right? You've been looking at this company, which is a company called Lanzatech, which is developing a non-biofuel sustainable aviation fuel. How does that work? Well, they do use ethanol. So they use waste gases. Um, so they capture emissions from uh, in emitting facilities, and then they turn that into ethanol. So it's ethanol from waste gases as opposed to ethanol from cornfields. And then they turn that ethanol into sustainable aviation fuel. And so Lanzatech is a company that's been around for almost 20 years. They have the technology that can do this. And then they spun off in 2020 a sister company called Lanzajet that is actually building a facility this year. It'll be complete by next year is their, is their current goal that will turn waste gases um, into ethanol, then into jet fuel. It's But it's just a 10 million gallon a facility which is not even a drop in the bucket for how much we fly today, but it's nonetheless really showing that this type of uh, sustainable aviation fuel, which is coming from waste gases, which is far cleaner than something that might come from corn ethanol, for example, can scale up. But you're seeing, you know, over the last couple of years, I think just this year, United flew their first. I think it was the first um, 50%, one engine had 100% SAF, flew from, I think, Chicago to D.C. or, or vice versa. And so you're seeing a lot of developments in this space. And, and what's really exciting to me is that although the costs are the biggest challenge, technologically speaking, we actually don't have a big problem here, which is a refreshing change compared to some other technologies like long-duration energy storage, where the technology is still being batted around as which, which way is the best way here. Here, sustainable aviation fuel is technically capable. It's just the cost that's the problem. And what are the chances of making it cost competitive? Is it ever going to get to the point, do you think, where, as Emily was saying, where you can compete effectively against conventional jet fuel, which at the moment obviously is a, is a much cheaper option? Or is there always going to have to be some very large subsidy, do you think, put in place in order to persuade airlines to use sustainable fuel? Yeah, so we have a term at Breakthrough called the green premium, uh, which denotes the the difference between uh, green technology versus their fossil fuel counterpart. And yes, for sustainable aviation fuel, it's a three to five times greater in cost. So that's that's significant. But our founder, Bill Gates, uh, said in a recent interview uh, late last year that he's actually pretty optimistic for this type of technology to have the cost come down within something like five years if the right steps are taken. And that's a big if. And so earlier I mentioned the Catalyst program we have at Breakthrough, which is trying to solve the valley of death problem that we're talking about here. And so uh, Breakthrough has brought on several corporate partners that are putting money toward our program that 
and various different financial instruments to help fund first of their kind projects. And so one of the partners is American Airlines. They say they're investing $100 million into this effort. And so a catalyst is just one example of the ways that we need companies and governments to actually put money into lowering the cost of this technology and creating the demand. And so, you know, the State Department uh, last year announced their first movers coalition, which is another similar initiative. And so if the right steps are taken, we can bring down the cost, but it won't just happen magically. It won't happen fast enough unless we take these types of steps. But even just having that potential, certainly for those cost reductions is very interesting. And who knows, maybe when we're going on our Christmas vacations and visiting our families in 2029. Perhaps we will be doing it on planes carrying sustainable aviation fuel. I'll also just add, you know, as a final note on this topic, that government policy is also incredibly important. I know the the Build Back Better policy is is not moving ahead at the moment as it stands, but uh, the tax incentives that are in that proposal for sustainable aviation fuel, things like that are also incredibly important to speed up this commercialization process. And again, everything comes back to the pace. And so that's why things like Catalyst, but also combined with government policy is so important. EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. These inverters have industry-leading response time, advanced control features, and grid-forming capabilities. EPC is headquartered in San Diego County, California. To support growing global demand, they recently opened an engineering and sales branch in Helsinki, Finland, and are launching an East Coast factory this year. EPC Power is expanding its presence as the largest US grid-scale inverter manufacturer, delivering over a gigawatt of energy storage inverters to date, and over 2 gigawatts by the end of this year. Visit www.epcpower.com energygang to learn more about their utility-scale and CNI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. So we've been talking about technological progress and the need for investment and support to deliver that progress. Brings me on to some very interesting numbers we've just been looking at about VC and private equity investment into clean tech. As you might expect, given the amount of interest in the sector, that investment has been absolutely booming. About $60 billion was invested by venture capital and private equity into climate tech in the first half of 2021. And that's according to a recent survey from the professional services firm PwC. That figure of $60 billion is more than double the $28 billion that was invested in the first half of 2020. And about 14% of all venture capital financing is now going to climate tech. But that same PwC survey also highlighted a pretty fundamental issue with clean tech investing, which is the possibility that we're not financing the right technologies. There's a pretty startling statistic in the report, which is that the top five technologies for emissions reduction, which between them account for over 80% of future emissions reduction potential, receive just 25% of the climate tech investment between 2013 and 2021. So it definitely sounds as though there is a mismatch there. Amy, Talk to you about this. I mean, this is your absolute bread and butter, right? I mean, this is what you're doing all the time uh, at Breakthrough is trying to get investment into the right kinds of climate solutions. How do you see the industry as a whole? When you look across the landscape, do you think there is a mismatch there? Is investment really not getting into the right technologies? Well, I definitely think that mismatch exists and it's it's cause for a big concern. You know, for a long time, venture capital uh, money wasn't going into climate tech really at all uh, because it was so hard and it takes such a long time to make a profit. The clean tech boom of, I guess, you know, the, the late 2000s was just a fraction of the money going into the space now. And that really dried up. You know, it dried up because a lot of them weren't making money in, in the time frame that they needed, which is five to 10 years as a venture capitalist. And so now you starting to see money go into the space. And I think it's important to pause and talk about the incredible accomplishments that have been made on wind and solar. And now, ironically, wind and solar investments are kind of considered bread and butter uh, investments that aren't exciting or risky, which is good. But now we're seeing, you know, there's some examples of money going into wind and solar and not necessarily going into things like sustainable aviation fuel or 
green hydrogen or direct air capture. And, and we need to invest in all of these, not just wind and solar. You know, if we're just going to do wind and solar, but not long duration energy storage, well, that's going to leave us high and dry, you know, in a couple of decades when we have all this wind and solar, but no way to capture it at night or when it's not windy. And so the risk is, is that money is going into these technologies that are already relatively mature, like wind and solar, or other technologies and companies that are sort of tinkering around the edges. Uh, that could be the proliferation of uh, software as a service companies. And yes, we need some, but we probably don't need as many as we have out there in the market now. And then also carbon offsets. Uh, you know, there's so much effort going into that, into the, the way to try to make money from carbon offsets. But is that really helping combat the problem? No, it's not. We need investments in the hard technologies that are hard to make money from. And that's why you're seeing this mismatch. So Emily, what do you think about this issue? Again, at Generate Capital, this is absolutely at the heart of what you're doing. Do you see a fundamental problem there? Do you think we're seeing venture capital funding flowing into the wrong technologies or not enough into the right ones at least? Well, yeah, it's like it's probably not enough in general that's flowing into um, this space, even though there is a huge amount and it's so gratifying to see the huge amount of money starting to flow in to climate tech. There's more of a question about like what problem we're trying to solve. And that's something we're asking about at Generate all the time. Like, How are we really going to solve climate change? If our goal is to get to 1.5 degrees, let's start there in the capital markets and say, well, how do we use finance to get to that problem? And so if you think about venture capital, fundamentally, it's um, a process that sort of developed in the last 70 years in industry that um, came sort of focused really on, on tech it's really been based in Silicon Valley, um, the West Coast. It's really about building companies and sort of finding those unicorns, right? Every venture firm wants to invest in a company that's going to be a unicorn. So, But if you think about a unicorn, it's a billion-dollar company, right? Climate change is a trillion-dollar issue. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has estimated we need annual investment of $2.4 trillion until 2035. So that's $2.4 trillion a year. Are we going to get there with a lot of billion dollar companies? Maybe. But we also have to think more creatively about, you know, how we're going to get to the speed in the next 10 years if we need to deploy it right now. So Generate's always focused really a lot on proven technology that's available right now to deploy, thinking that the emissions we reduce today are possibly more valuable than the emissions we reduce in 10 years. You know, energy efficiency has great payback today. Um, if you can incentivize that, then maybe you're going to be reducing emissions for a much longer period of time faster. And then there's also the issue of, you know, what's happened in nature, where we've made tons of investment in renewable, wind, solar, and then there's a forest fire that kind of takes off and creates some of the emissions we've been trying to reduce. So like, how can we invest in those things that maybe don't have the right economic model yet to um, really solve the problem? So you really just have to think about the whole ecosystem. And that's something we're really focused on at Generate is how can we adjust this financial ecosystem so that you can get solar panels on every roof the way we all have auto loans, the way we all have mortgages. Um, how can you use that to accelerate deployment? And what are your answers to that then? I mean, what are the changes that need to happen? I mean, is that really about, does that really have to be driven by policy? Or are there changes that you can do as generate capital, as the investment industry more generally? What does it take to get the capital flowing into those right places? I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> I'd probably be um, way better off than we were if I had the answer. But yes, of course, um, infrastructure is an area that takes like a whole bunch of different actors. So there's an ecosystem that you sort of develop around deployment of infrastructure where there's policy involved, where there's venture capital, where there's other types of capital. What I've learned about working in this energy space is that clean energy companies need so many different types of capital to accelerate deployment. And so we have to just be really creative about like, how do we help them solve that problem? How do we get to the point of having an impact. And the way that we've traditionally built companies might not be appropriate. So we should be questioning that all the time. I also think it's important that energy, more so than so many other sectors, for example, software and other types of technologies, the government plays such a critical role. So in order to get the financial flowing in the right directions at the speed that we need, we need more government involvement. And that, you know, is why this topic is so controversial, right? Because when we talk about our capitalistic system, we also need to talk about our political system. And so for this particular challenge, I think we need more government involvement. I think the financial 
financial system won't go in the direction that we needed to go at the pace that we needed to go without some sort of direction from the government, all governments, not just the US. Which is a perfect segue into the next subject I want to talk about, which is the EU's green taxonomy. Sounds pretty abstruse. I was thinking about this. I think the last big issue in taxonomy I can remember is the question of whether pandas are really bears or not, But which is, interestingly, was actually settled by uh, DNA analysis, but not till the 1980s was determined that pandas are actually bears. Anyway, this issue in taxonomy is actually hugely important because it's exactly what you were just talking about, Amy. It's about directing capital towards the right kinds of investments to reduce emissions, address climate change, and setting government policy to do that. The idea is that the EU is setting up this list of environmentally sustainable economic activities, and that will give companies, investors, policymakers, the whole world, definitions of which economic activities can be treated as environmentally sustainable and which can't. So if, for example, you're buying shares in a company that says, oh, we're a sustainable company, we're doing sustainable things, you will know that at the very least it meets the criteria laid down by the EU because it's been classified that way under this taxonomy. The idea is it's cool, it'll uh, prevent greenwashing and it will help divert capital then towards genuinely climate-friendly investments. It has been massively controversial in particular because of a big fight over whether nuclear power and natural gas should be counted as sustainable. We've just recently had a statement on this from the European Commission. On January the 1st, the European Commission said there should be a role for natural gas and nuclear as a means to facilitate the transition towards a predominantly renewables-based future. So that meant that gas and nuclear power could be included as sustainable under, they said, under clear and tight conditions. And for gas, those conditions do seem pretty arduous. The gas has to come from renewable sources or be on a path to show it's going to have low emissions by 2035. What the Commission said was it's worth including nuclear and gas as sustainable activities to accelerate the phase out of more harmful sources, such as coal. That's an argument that I think a lot of people support, but not everyone does. And certainly there's been unhappiness from some environmental campaigners and people have been saying that they shouldn't really be uh, allowing nuclear power and gas to be included as sustainable activities under this taxonomy. Emily, interested in your thoughts on this one. So, I mean, for a start, what do you think of what the EU's trying to do? I mean, is this a sensible exercise? Sounds quite a top-down thing to be doing for the government to be, or the governments of Europe to be saying, these activities are sustainable, we're going to put them in this bucket, and those other activities are unsustainable, we're going to put them in a different bucket. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you started with where you first heard about taxonomy, Ed. The first time I heard it, I was an accounting reporter covering the Financial Accounting Standards Board, and they were always trying to make a taxonomy of things that would make accounting more clearly. And I think this boils down to that sort of issue. This whole green taxonomy is an idea that emerged after the Paris climate deal. And when the EU like wanted to just create a, a standard for like what's actually green, like we have all these issues with greenwashing, because people haven't really decided on what's actually green. And what what do we need so that we get to net zero? And how are you accounting for the like the negative emissions part or the avoided emissions part of net zero is still a question that plagues, I think, everybody who does sustainable accounting or does, you know, um, emissions accounting right now. There's definitely an issue in terms of needing a taxonomy, it would be great to have the answer to say, this is green. I can really agree that this is green with everybody around me agrees it's green. The government agrees it's green. I'm going to put money into that right now. But there's also what's available right now and the being in the transition state of an energy transition and how we get from point A to point B, where we may need nuclear along the way, we may need gas along the way, we may need all of these technologies to play a role in reducing emissions so that we can get where we're going at the speed. So it would be really great is just to have this collective. I think that's the goal of the taxonomy is to have a collective group of people working together to sort of accelerate and clarify where we have to be spending money and where investors can feel confident spending money. I don't know that they've done it yet, but you know, it's it's a good effort to keep trying. And although this is something which Europe is very much leading the way on, as is often the case in climate policy, it's been European governments, European Commission that have been kind of out in front of the rest of the world in terms of setting policy, thinking about regulation to reduce emissions. This green taxonomy, a European initiative, could well have global ramifications, right? 
Yeah, if you're going to say that a certain type of technology is effective, you know, emissions are global. Um, carbon emissions, they talk about, you know, we're looking at the whole atmosphere across the entire globe. So, of course, choosing one type of technology could obviously propel investment into that space um, and saying that this one is officially sustainable. Countries around the world have looked at this. You know, there's been plenty of proposals sent to the SEC around sort of defining green investment or plenty of groups that have tried to define what's really a sustainable investment. And part of it is we're like just constrained by what exists in the world today. If we want to start pushing capital in one way or another, we have to deal with what we have available today. There's only so many publicly traded companies. There's only so many climate tech companies that are investable even. You've seen that come out with the stack boom, right? Where there's suddenly a lot more climate tech that's investable. That's an issue that we have to solve is to sort of take the legacy that we have and build a future from that where we balance it out and how we think about green capitalism. It's sort of a a transitional state. So Amy, what's your view of the green taxonomy? Is it something that that makes sense? One of the things I've been thinking about, so Breakthrough Energy, your supportive of all low carbon technologies, including nuclear as part of the mix. Is that a very positive development then as far as you're concerned when you see the EU kind of officially designating nuclear power as a sustainable activity? Yeah, certainly. I think this whole debate has really shown a lot of the divisions throughout Europe about about nuclear power and natural gas. And so I'll just first sort of separate those two because, you know, it's really unfortunate, myself included, you know, the media and others have really grouped those two energy resources together, but they really don't have anything in common other than they're controversial and they can provide, you know, reliable streams of power. But otherwise, you know, nuclear power, one of the primary reasons it should exist at all is because it's a carbon-free source of a lot of electricity. Whereas natural gas is a lot more controversial. You know, it shouldn't be considered green. Will it be a transition source? I think the answer is it is being a transition source in the United States and Europe and elsewhere. So just to sort of sort of separate out those two as they're not really the same and other than they're 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 not popular, right? When it comes to this debate. And so Breakthrough Energy is an organization that supports action on climate change, and therefore we support anything that reduces emissions, and that includes safe nuclear power. And that uh, first includes keeping open existing nuclear power plants. You know, it seems just really asinine to be closing plants in California or Germany or France because of concerns about uh, potential future safety issues as opposed to existing safety issues when we literally need to be running faster. That's sort of like if you're running a marathon and in order to win, you need to speed up, but instead you turn around and run the opposite direction. That's what we're doing when we're closing existing nuclear power plants. So uh, that's why it's, it's, uh, so that's one side of it. And then the other side of nuclear power is advanced reactors, small modular reactors and other technologies in that space. And that's where the green taxonomy is going to be really important. So some of these companies will be able to get more financial backing with nuclear power included. Now, there's a lot of challenges with advanced nuclear power. And I'm not, I can't sit here and today and tell you that's exactly what it's going to be. But there needs to be some consideration of it and at least not taking it off the table. Going back to Emily's point about interest in the US in this kind of thing, in terms of having some kind of green taxonomy for the US, as Emily was saying, there's been a lot of people writing to the SEC arguing for it. Again, it must be one of those things where moving towards harmonized global standards must have an advantage. It's difficult for big international companies, big international investors to comply with a lot of very different sets of regulations in different economies, different jurisdictions. Do you think we are going to ultimately head to a point where the US also has some kind of green taxonomy like the one being developed in the EU? And actually, just just before we answer that question, I'm just going to read you something which I did think was pretty interesting. Um, this came out from a um, subcommittee of the CFTC back in September 2020, pretty well making the case. Uh, just if I can just read this paragraph, they said, financial regulators in coordination with the private sector should support the development of a US appropriate standardized and consistent classification systems or taxonomies for physical and transition risk, exposure, sensitivity, vulnerability, adaptation, resilience, spanning asset classes and sectors in order to define core terms supporting the comparison of climate risk data and associated financial products and services. So that seems like a pretty clear call for the US to do 
exactly what the EU is doing now. So as I say, what do you think? Do you think the US is going to get there one day? Yes, I do think the United States is going to move toward something like a green taxonomy. It'll be a little bit different. It'll be probably a little bit lighter uh, in terms of, you know, strict government protocol. You know, Europe is just more aggressive in these areas than the U.S. will probably ever be. Uh, But yes, ultimately, we're going to have to have some common language for all of these technologies. And I think a really important point here is, of course, Europe is... Uh, the the leader on a lot of these areas and technologies, the U.S. as well. Of course, China is moving ahead, perhaps not necessarily with the taxonomy, but with the technologies themselves. But it's also incredibly important to think about the developing world and countries that still need to rapidly develop their economies. And so there's been a big debate about financial support for countries in Africa, for example, to continue to develop Things like a natural gas plant, for example. And so I think the green taxonomy here hopefully will allow some sort of flexibility for these countries that still need to develop. And I just want to throw out a stat that really floored me, which is that if all of sub-Saharan Africa, if it tripled its electricity use overnight using only natural gas, it would still account for just 1% increase in global emissions. And that number is from the Energy for Growth Hub, which is a nonprofit focused on global energy equity. And so I think uh, there needs to be an an acknowledgement that we're not all at the same stage of our economic development and that, you know, coal isn't even debated in Africa really as as an investment, but natural gas is. And so I just think that's incredibly important. And I haven't heard that that much from Europe. So that'll be something that I'm watching as the taxonomy debate continues. That is fascinating. That is, as you say, an amazing statistic and very powerful. As you say, when you think about energy equality around the world and about the just transition that people are talking about, that's a really um, powerful point in that argument. Emily, final thought from you on this. Um, what do you think about taxonomies and the way they might be spreading around the world? I mean, do you expect this to become a kind of a global thing or a thing certainly in, in the US and other uh, developed economies? This is an area where policy obviously can be really helpful, where they just sort of lay out what the playing field is, right? Like, you know, financial firms probably don't want to be spending all their time evaluating green technology on each individual firm. That's not very efficient. So a classification system could be really powerful in just channeling money and investment to certain types of technology that, you know, we all agree are going to make a big impact. If this is going to work in the US, there would probably have to be a lot of different groups that come together. Because when we think about like what's a green investment, there's climate change mitigation, there's climate change adaptation, there's circular economy, pollution prevention, water improvements, um, energy efficiency, biodiversity, there's so many different areas that you could have. And, you know, in the US, we everybody sort of likes to have their own domain. So it might be harder to get agreement than the EU to have all those groups of regulators come together. Um, Maybe the US Treasury's Financial Stability Oversight Council would also have a pretty good role to play there. So it'd just be interesting to see if we can get those groups of regulators together, if they can work across the aisles, there's probably going to be have to be some sort of body or international body that um, comes up with this and sort of maintains it. But that is potentially, if it worked, a way to stimulate and catalyze um, investment in the right things. We discovered a very large comet. Oh, good for you. It's headed directly towards Earth. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess? Sit tight. And then assess. The sit tight part comes first, then you got to digest it. That's the assessment period. So this is the point of the show where we turn the Energy Gang into a film podcast. There's been a huge amount of discussion in the past couple of weeks about the Netflix film Don't Look Up, which is a rare example of Hollywood giving a big budget, big star treatment to a movie about climate change. It's been called a movie about climate change. It's sort of about climate change. The story is actually about a giant comet heading for the Earth, threatening to wipe out civilization. But it is being used and very kind of deliberately used by the filmmakers as an allegory for the way that our politics and media respond to the climate issue. As I said, there's been an enormous debate about it already, but I think we should add to it right now. Uh, one warning before we get into that conversation, we are going to be talking about everything that happened in this film, uh, including right to the end. So if you don't want any spoilers, 
you should uh, switch off the podcast now, put it down, go away, watch the film, and then you can come back and listen to the rest and see whether you agree with us. Amy, you saw this film first, so we should start with you, I think. Uh, what did you think of it? Well, spoiler alert, the comet does, in fact, hit the Earth. So that was interesting. Uh you know, it was okay. Probably a little less bad than I thought it was going to be. You know, I really loved The Big Short, which is another movie made by the same producer. So, uh, it's Adam McKay, right? The writer and director. Yeah. Adam, right. But maybe that's because I'm more steeped in this topic, the allegory of climate change, than I was the financial crisis. So maybe once you get too close to an issue, you're sometimes more critical of it. After I watched it, I was actually more worried about a comet hitting the Earth than I was about climate change. So maybe there was that sort of random impact um, from, from me watching it. I also think, you know, here in the climate community, we, we live in a little bit of a bubble, and we're actually not necessarily uh, illustrative of the rest of the, the population. And so if, if you're not listening to what the, the, the makers and the actors about the movie are saying, and if you're just watching the movie, you know, my conversations with friends who, you know, are of my ilk, but not in climate, you know, they actually didn't think of climate change immediately. They thought of the pandemic, and they just thought of it sort of as a general observation of our society, not caring about urgent issues of which climate change is one. Uh, so I think, you know, let's just be a little bit humble and like maybe not everybody thinks this is about climate change. But number two, I you know, I think it's really important that we understand it for the solutions for climate change are not going to be the solutions for a comet. And likening climate change to a comet, you know, a comet is an immediate and specific crisis that hits everybody relatively the same, right? It kills everybody. Whereas uh, climate change is another type of crisis altogether. It's gradual and disparate and affects the whole world in very different ways. And so it's so much more complicated. And I know, you know, the, the, I'm, I know the producers know that and they're like, but we need to make something uh, immediate and specific to get people to care. But that's why people don't care about climate change, because it's not a comet. Uh, and, but then, you know, just as, as one sort of positive thing about the, the movie, you know, I do think our society is growing immune to terrible things. I mean, how many people, you know, a thousand, I don't even know how many people are dying of COVID today. So I'm part of the problem of not knowing how terrible the pandemic is today. And, and, and that's terrible to think that people are dying every day from a pandemic and we've, we've grown numb to it three years in. But one, one anecdote that I'd briefly like to share that shows, sort of reinforces what this movie's all about uh, with the way they portray TV news as sort of not caring about these issues. You know, the day uh, then President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement in June 2017, you know, MSNBC, I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time, MSNBC asked me to come on. I was about to get into the, the car that they send for you, and then they cancel it. And then they rescheduled me for later in the day. And they, I go down to the studio, and I spend this time getting ready, and I'm in the chair about to go live. But then Hillary Clinton, former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, said something that was apparently more newsworthy than talking about climate change on the day Trump pulled out of Paris. Yeah, which is almost exactly what happens in the movie, right? That's amazing, where the discussion of the comet gets kind of um, trampled on and shoved off the news bulletins because there's a huge argument about the Supreme Court justice being appointed. Yeah, I did think, I definitely thought the satirical shots that were taken at the media actually were some of the most accurate parts of the film. I thought that um, a lot of that they really got right in talking about the short attention span of the media, and as you say, TV news perhaps in particular. So Emily, what did you think? Yeah, it was fun to be here with a group of three former uh, mainstream journalists talking about the media's coverage of climate change and everything. Actually, it was kind of personal for me that this is actually, it reminded me a lot of the way I started covering climate change and started to think about it as an issue that I had been um, the bankruptcy team leader at Reuters in the financial crisis. And I had covered, you know, Lehman Brothers and General Motors and Chrysler and all of those big, huge bankruptcies. And one of the stories that people told about and sort of like joked sometimes was this old quote by Ernest Hemingway from the book, The Sun Also Rises. And they asked this question, how did you go bankrupt to one of the characters? And the character says two ways, gradually and then suddenly. 
And that is like a big issue. That is how humans respond to crisis. And so I thought this was a beautiful film about how humans respond to crisis, um, any type of crisis, whether it's Omicron or COVID or bankruptcy or, you know, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy not to see the forest for the trees. It's easy to get unfocused on the problem at hand. It's you know, film can be very, very powerful in this climate space. We've seen it as a really great tool, like look at like Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. You know, it's been a really great tool to get people talking about this and understanding how it can fit into their lives. We really have to think about in a crisis situation like this or like a comet coming at the earth, you know, it's like very obvious, like you can see it, right? But it's too late when you can see it. Or like over betting that some amazing, brilliant technology is going to save us and then it fails at the last second and there's no fail safe anymore or not being able to get a coalition of people involved when you need to have them involved. So there's quite a lot of allegory to climate change. Obviously, Leo DiCaprio is a big um, climate change investor himself um, and really focused on the space for a long time. So. So I just think it's a good way to ask yourself some questions about, you know, how am I responding to the crises I see in my life today? And am I actually working to solve the problems that matter in the world um, that cuts the world keep going for myself and for future generations? And how am I having an impact on that today? Yeah, I think like like Amy, I enjoyed it more than I expected to, having read a lot of the uh, negative coverage beforehand. And as you were saying, Amy, it's absolutely not a perfect analogy for climate change, which is very different in some very significant kinds of ways. But Emily, as you were saying, it's just really good about the way we respond to threats in general and the way human beings and our society and our political system and our media in particular respond to crises. And it's quite a kind of a general point across a number of different threats. One thing I did uh, particularly like was the way that everything becomes kind of a, a stupid you know, political culture war. You have you have the uh, the don't look up campaign, which is people saying don't look at the comment, and then the just look up campaign that has you know, all these sort of you know, well-meaning actors and uh, musicians involved. And the, I have to say, I did laugh out loud. The Ariana Grande performance I thought was uh, was hilarious. So the, a lot of those things did land, I think, and were very funny. I mean, one of the things I was interested by also in terms of the reception of the film was that it has been very, very successful. Netflix has said it's the most watched program of any kind over a single week in the history of Netflix. I looked this morning, it was still number three in the Netflix's most watched list, certainly sort of anecdotally, just kind of talking to friends and family and people. I know a lot of people that have seen it, and in general, it's got quite a positive response. Although, as you say, I mean, probably quite a lot of people that have seen it and enjoyed it haven't even kind of made the connection to climate change at all. So it may not be achieving its goal. But it still is raising important points about our society. So even if most viewers don't quite connect the dots to climate change or they don't change their minds because of it, I do think our society needs to learn how to just be a little bit nicer and not make everything a political football. And hopefully that's a message that resonates on all sides of the political aisle and in all parts of the country. An excellent note to end on, a late thought for the season of Goodwill, and we're going to leave it there. Amy, Emily, thank you both very much indeed for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks so much for the invite. Thanks, Ed. It was great to be here with you and Amy and uh, get the gang back together. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. As usual, give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering, anything else. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.